Hello, I'm Liz Grant. I'm one of the assistant principals at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. Um, I want to introduce our speaker for this um, podcast, Professor Abraham Verghese. Abraham Verghese is probably one of America's most significant physicians. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University, where he leads a very important work on presence. Why being with a patient matters so much in the healing process. And he's one of the RCPE's most prestigious fellows. Abraham was born in Ethiopia. His parents having come from Kerala and South India across to Ethiopia. But in the political turmoil after Haile Selassie, the last emperor of Ethiopia was overthrown, Abraham's family left Addis to go to America. Abraham went to study medicine in India. He went to Madras Medical College and he returned to the US for his residency programs. He's the author of some non-fiction, including My Own Country, a deeply moving account of HIV in the 1980s. His award-winning novel, Cutting for Stone, is a story of two Indian twins whose mother died in childbirth. They were brought up in an African mission hospital in Ethiopia. It was a New York Times bestseller and it was shortlisted on the Wellcome Trust's Book Prize. Abraham's won numerous prizes. He's received many orations. He's a deeply thoughtful and caring person. In 2016, he won the National Humanities Medal from President Barack Obama. And the oration says for this award, for reminding us that the patient is the center of the medical enterprise. His range of proficiency embodies the diversity of the humanities, from his efforts to emphasize empathy in medicine to his imaginative renderings of the human drama. In this podcast, we'll talk about the impact of the COVID pandemic, and we'll talk about Abraham's views of hospital and primary care, and how the humanities can help us through this time of the pandemic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to see you again. Uh, I'm Abraham Verghese. I'm a professor of medicine at Stanford, where I'm the vice chair of the Department of Medicine and run the education efforts of the department. So I'm heavily involved, especially with the students, to a lesser degree with the residents and the fellows. So uh, I'm an infectious disease specialist by training and proud to be a, a fellow of the Royal College uh, of Edinburgh. Thank you. And the last time we were meeting when you were across in Edinburgh, it was a very different time, uh, a, different, a different world. Abraham, I'd really like to, first of all, ask you just how you're experiencing this pandemic. Yeah, you know, my overwhelming feeling right now is actually one of guilt because I think uh, there's been such a spotty experience across our country in terms of the amount of patients that individual institutions are seeing. And I think California was uh, fortunate in that we did a lot of planning. We spent a lot of time anticipating surges. We actually planned for 30% attrition of our workforce. And then we planned for 70% of attrition of our workforce. I mean, taking cues from Italy and from Spain, and very, very fortunately for us, uh, you know, we have managed to avoid the surge. I think there was a point where we opened up one surge ICU in addition to the 
large numbers of ICUs that we already have in our system. And then we shut it down because we, we were able to cope. So mostly what I'm experiencing is just a tremendous amount of guilt as I look at the experiences of colleagues uh, in New York and Boston, obviously also uh, in Europe, especially Spain and Italy and, and also the UK. So um, I've been spared, I would say, the brunt of uh, the hard, hardcore sort of clinical work that uh, my colleagues are experiencing. Most of the action for us has been happening at the emergency room level or in the ICU and uh, mostly young doctors and it's just a matter of great pride to watch them you know respond so heroically to this uh, challenge that's the first one of its kind in their lifetime and and ours i would venture yeah. i think this will make each of us very different people when we come through this pandemic and and can i ask um you, you've mentioned you know you looked across to europe um, what was happening in Italy and Spain and the UK. What's, what is the sense and from your colleagues and friends of what is happening in the UK at the minute with the way we're managing um, COVID-19? Yeah, it's hard for me to, you know, say very much. Obviously, I'm limited by what I read in the news, but I think what's been most frustrating and striking to all of us, wherever we are, is that we have this tremendous and very quick scientific knowledge that we developed around this virus. I mean, think about it. In no time, we had the genome, we had the receptor, we had viral targets, we had epidemiology transmission. Compare that to the HIV era, which is where I cut my teeth, you know, as a young infectious disease physician, where we went for years without even knowing what was causing that infection. And I think the frustration many of us have felt is that the logistical support around the scientific knowledge has been you know tremendously lacking whether it comes to you know once you had a test the ability to roll it out quickly and then the the paucity of you know personal protective equipment or ppe so in a sense i feel like science stepped up to the line and responded beautifully physicians stepped up to the line and responded beautifully but I think that you're seeing, at least over here, what I think of as basically a failed nation state. You know, the, the parts of a nation state that make it work are clear lines of communication, clear responsibilities and authorities. And, you know, in our sort of current political turmoil, I think uh, much of it was exposed by this virus in a very, very ugly way. I can't speak to the UK, but I would imagine that the same frustrations around the lack of personal protection, protective equipment, and around testing must be existent. And it's, you know, it's just unfair and uh, unethical, I think, to put physicians in certain positions, um, you know, that are contrary to the knowledge base that we know exists. I understand the difficulties in getting all these things together, but I think there was a level of efficiency that was clearly lacking here you know and all the you know all the business about fake news fake knowledge doesn't really hurt you until it does hurt you and it has been really hurtful here yeah. no I, and i think what it as you say what it has shown is the um, the disconnect between um systems and the logistics and systems and people who have stepped up to the mark I wonder, 
in the light of that, I have two questions. One is how you are practicing medicine because Abraham, what you um, symbolize presence. You symbolize a change in the way that medicine is practiced by the, the presence and touch. And how is that affecting the way that you think now around your clinical practice? And how can you encourage young doctors of the future to realize that presence and touch still matters? Well, it's been an interesting period for me. I think, uh, you know, we have ramped up almost, I would say, 20 to 30 fold our telemedicine almost overnight. Uh, so many of our outpatient visits, almost all of them are happening virtually, which, you know, I must say I've begun to appreciate the potential for, for doing that in the absence of being able to do it any other way. And it's always been clear to me that not all our visits needed to be in person and putting patients through the rigmarole of parking and so on. But I'm also noticing as this goes on and on, my younger colleagues are feeling the, you know, the, the stress of that kind of meeting. It's very hard to truly you know, interact in a meaningful way. And it's certainly hard. It's impossible to enact the ritual of examining the patient, a very important ritual that I talk about and write about that when done well, uh, creates a nice bond between you and the patient. And of course, when you're looking at a screen, it's impossible for that to happen. But that said, we have taken the principles of something we call the Presence Five, which we had published in JAMA just a few months before COVID, talking about in that singular moment when physicians first encounter a patient, it's sort of a mental checklist of things that they might do that help make connections. So we've tried to take that and adapt it to the virtual and telemedicine setting and just publish that in a, in a journal. But in addition, I'm actually thrilled to see the ways people are recognizing and you know working around different ways to make that connection. For example, in our ICUs, all our patients are getting iPads because you know, every time you want to go into the room and interact with them, it's a rigmarole of all that you know, protective equipment you have to put on in a certain way. And you also don't want to be, uh, you want to be parsimonious in your use of that equipment. And so having an iPad in the patient's hand and you have one and you're standing right, out of, right outside the room, they're looking at you, but you're having this conversation has been a, a tremendous help. Um, some of our providers, uh, again, something that initiated was initiated here by one of our presence investigators. Uh, she was printing out pictures of the physicians and the nurses, and then they would tape it to their isolation gowns so that when this masked hooded person walked in, you still had a face that you could see, uh, you know, someone that you could project your emotions on. I mean, this is a terrifying moment. And to think that the individual caring for you is largely invisible to you only adds to your angst, to your anxiety. Yeah. So it's been very interesting. Goodness, that's, that's fascinating. Um, uh, uh, both the, uh, the, the sense of reenacting presence in different ways and the space between. Uh, and you know, as you say, COVID-19 has created separation, physical distancing, is a message that all of us are holding and all of us are being given. And yet you describe um, beautiful ways to um, fill the, the space of separation with 
compassion and care and, and human contact in some form or other. And I, I wonder if I can ask you more about ways of um, filling filling that space with love and care and taking away the fear because fear seems to be the the emotion that is dominating a lot of people's um, senses at the minute. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when, when we're dealing with video visits, one of the guidelines that we're giving our providers is, you know, when they start the visit, to really be attentive to be looking at the camera and you know our habit when we're usually in front of a screen is to be looking at 10 different things and uh, but you know you really want them to feel that you're being as attentive as you might be if you were there in person and to remove all distractions from around you uh, and to maintain that eye contact and to begin by asking how they're doing with their sheltering how they're doing with their quarantine how the family's doing before you sort of get into the nitty-gritty the other thing that I think is precious both in person and on a televisit is making sure that they finish speaking, waiting another second or two, and then beginning to speak. Because, you know, it's always awkward when people speak over each other, but it's even more so uh, in the confines of televisit. My own sense is that, uh, you know, Milan Kundera, the novelist, wrote that the first moment between a man and woman predicates everything that's going to come. Obviously, he was writing about, you know, romance and romantic love. But I mean, I think there are aspects of that that apply to medicine, where the first moment between a patient and a physician predicates everything that is to come. And to me, it's the embodiment of why this is art and science, because the art of medicine is recognizing, you know, the effect that you have on the patient. There is a obviously a transference that patients develop on you and to use a psychiatric term, you know, feelings that they project on you that have a lot to do with, you know, your gender, your age, the way you're dressed, you know, and I think the more experienced you are in medicine, the more you take advantage of that. You know, I tend to always wear a tie, which is not always required here because I think that most of my patients are of an age where I think it gives them a certain sense than if I didn't, if I was much more casual. But now when we're all wearing protective equipment in the hospital, that's become particularly a challenge. And I think if anything, it's sort of heightened and made more poignant the need to try and connect. And my own feeling is that when these days are over and when we can all take off our masks again, uh, you know, there'll be a sense of, you know, the very way that we greet long lost loved ones after many years apart, there will be a sense of poignancy and appreciation for the clinical moment that I think otherwise, you know, can become very, very routine after many years. That's so important what you're saying. When um, time moves on and as you say, um, clinicians move out of the protective clothing and um, things seem to become back to normal. There'll be moments of rejoicing that um, coming together. Uh, and I was asking you, how do you feel that we can keep retaining that um, the joy of that experience um, and not lose it in routine and not lose it in two years or three years time? What, what are some of the key um, the key thinkings that you have around 
retaining the joy? Well, I think, um, you know, it's always going to be a challenge to not slip back into routine and ritual, but I think the whole world is less naive than it was before. The whole world is recognizing that, uh, you know, strong leadership matters. It's more than just a matter of, you know, getting up there and mouthing things. It really is about leading the country to save lives. Um, so I think there's going to be a whole loss of innocence, both in terms of the voters' appetite for what they consider good leadership, but also within medicine, I hope it will signal a sense of the critical nature of these interactions, not to take them for granted, not to willy-nilly, you know, has, okay, six-week follow-up, four-week follow-up. I think we should be much more thoughtful about our follow-ups. Do they all need to be in person? Can we do a lot more video visits? We're actually learning a lot that we hope we can retain after this COVID period. For example, you know, it's not clear that every meeting on your calendar needs to be half an hour or one hour. These are defaults from the calendar function. They're not really your choices. Um, why not make every meeting 15 minutes with extensions as needed, for example? Uh, the other thing is the recognition that you can actually get a lot done by Zoom in a very efficient way. We're also learning that some of the hierarchy in a hospital, uh, some of the ways that things have been done are often not fruitful. There are too many layers and there's been sort of a clarifying of roles. In fact, if I think about it, you know, the, um, the response of a big institution like ours, where normally... Normally, we use 23,000 masks a day at two major hospitals and, you know, 120 individual little sites. Normally, we use uh, 23,000 masks a day. So you can imagine when you ramp up, you know, 24, 34, uh, you can go through your protection equipment in no time. Someone gave us a million masks, and I think they were staggered to realize how quickly we might go through them. So I think there's a recognition that, um, you know, the sort of traditional layers of administration and the layers of connection from, of hospital administration to the academic mission, a lot of that has come together in a beautiful way. The dean and the CEO of our hospital, at the best of times, we're always working closely together, but now it's almost seamless to see them in action. And I think we're going to carry away a lot of the innovations that have come out of this, uh, carry them forward. But they won't ever take away the, the, the human element. In fact, I'm struck by that, Liz. I was, I've, been reading, um, I've been reading The Plague by uh, Camus. And I, you know, I, picked up, I picked up that book and I read it during the SARS epidemic, during the HIV epidemic, during the MERS epidemic. And it's amazing how one book could have so much wisdom. And there's a line in there, many great lines in there, but one of them is that, you know, there are really no good or evil intention people in the world. And so much of what we think of as, you know, bad intentions or good intentions are really about misinformation. And I'm hoping that the world can come out of this with a recognition that misinformation costs lives and, uh, you know, that these things truly matter. Uh, maybe we should make it a requirement for every administrator and politician who presumes to rule our lives to read this book uh, and recognize the lessons in there because it's so profound. That is very profound. I have been reading um, John O'Donoghue's 
um, poetry and, and work. Do you know John O'Donoghue, an Irish poet who, who died very suddenly? But he describes um, how we are so connected to the landscape and reflecting on what you say, that if we can see, see the landscape um, uh, as containing all of the past, um, and then see ourselves in that and see that the, 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 the power that we have bringing the whole of history with us, looking forward, how it, it begins to teach us something about humility and about um, being responsive to this, to greater things that are happening in the world that we can't control, but it also is being responsive to to truth and to be upholding truth. And I think that's what you're echoing in in, in Camus' work as well. That 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 connectedness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been struck by the fact that this COVID epidemic in California happened in our most miserable season. Uh, you know, where it was rainy and cold and all of a sudden uh you know when you looked out you suddenly saw that nature was thriving we might all be indoors but you know the 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 japanese maple is thriving and flowers are coming out and wildlife there's just been there's just been this craze on the internet to show the wildlife that is making its way out now that humans are not uh, around to bother them and I think, uh, you know, it's a reminder that, you know, we might wipe ourselves out, but the earth will be just fine. In fact, the earth will be better off without our presence. And <laughs> I think there's a certain humidity there that you're alluding to that I think is profoundly underlined by this epidemic. Yes. And no, I, I want to just ask a, a question around that because the unintended consequences of all of our lockdown mitigation strategies has been... Um, a flourishing of nature, um, which is amazing. I, I mean, the, the pandemic in one awful sense has done far more for um, climate change than these years of advocacy and trying to encourage people to um, reduce their carbon emissions and their footprints, but it's, but it's done it at a price and, and the price is too great because the poor have paid the price. How, how could we um, achieve achieve that flourishing of nature, achieve a different way of life, because we've been, you know, forced to have a radically different way of life at the minute. How can we, you know, achieve that almost like at a different cost, a cost that's not, um, the cost that, that poor, the poor are not carrying, a cost that the vulnerable are not carrying, and obviously a cost of, uh, not at the cost of losing lives. But what do you see? Because we have this planetary health, um, I think it's a fairly old idea by now that we don't live in isolation as human beings, that we are really inseparable from our botanical world, from our animal world, and that we all affect each other. Most of the affecting has been one way where we human beings have managed to make many species extinct or in great danger. And from an infectious disease point of view, I think there's always been the sense that the more we encroach on rainforests and the more we encroach on wildlife, the greater the chances for species, as in the case of uh, Ebola and Marburg, to jump from their normal host over to us. And this has happened again now with 
with COVID where uh, a bat coronavirus we think has made this transition. So I'm hoping that there will be more impetus uh, for countries and governments to come together around this issue. But in a way, I think that more and more one is seeing the isolationism that's being practiced, the uh, countries sort of working at cross purposes, uh, our government threatening to cut funding to the WHO, all of which are not going to help the situation. But I'm very much an optimist. I think it's going to take a lot more pain uh, for you know hardened voters to suddenly understand, you know what, uh, knowledge matters and ignorance costs lives. Uh, maybe we haven't quite reached that pain point yet, but uh, we're very close. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And can I pick up on what you said also about the WHO because that has hit the headlines hugely. Um, the, uh, the worry if the US stops stops its funding, which um, is that the discussion at the minute. Um, how do you feel Dr. Tedros has handled this pandemic? Yeah, I actually uh, think that anybody who takes that job is in a very delicate position because you're, you know, you're beholden to governments who fund you, as we're seeing right now, and they, uh, you know, if, they're, if they have that sort of character, they will bully you and hold over your head their, the funding. But that said, uh, it's been very clear to most of us that he was sounding the alarm for a long time. Uh, we might have failed to listen. He certainly was saying things that were supportive of the Chinese government in a way that some people here view as being pandering to them. Uh, I don't really know. I think it's a difficult role to play. But I would say that if, you want to sh if we want to shoot ourselves in the foot, uh, in America, for example, it's a great way to do that is to begin by cutting our funding to the WHO and trying to act alone, unless, of course, we're willing to shut off all airplane flights and just truly become an island nation of some sort. So I think, you know, I predict that the WHO will have a stronger role than ever. And I think history will be kinder to him than some of the folks who uh, are badmouthing him right now. That's, that's very helpful. And I, I think I have been so struck by Dr. Tedros's comments and um, uh, even his one line, one word tweets often just around hope, honesty and integrity and compassion, just saying those matter. And that's what's going to bring us together as a, as a community. Can I ask you two more questions? Well, I was, uh, if I may say, I was, you know, I was born in Ethiopia and I began my medical schooling in Ethiopia before it was interrupted. And Tedros has been a, in an amazing human being in terms of how he was in Ethiopia and his role in the health ministry there. And uh, I think the words you used about him are absolutely accurate and they sort of stand in contrast to many of the people who are, you know, trying to scapegoat him. Uh, it's a tough job and I'm sure he has made mistakes and he will be the first to admit them. Uh, but he is a uplifting presence a good person to to follow. Yeah. Thank you. Two two further questions, if if I may. One, I remember when you were in Edinburgh and you were um, talking about um, the insightfulness of um, 
looking at, at someone, being able to take the full picture of someone as they walk in to, to actually to really see someone. And you were describing the woman who came from Burnt Island and uh, the, the, um, the physician had, had made a number, looked at her, she, he looked at her, he saw her, um, the, the child that had a coat that was too big, he saw the, the, the red soil on, on her shoes that indicated she'd come through the gardens. Uh, and you talked about the importance of being able to um, really see through the, the fog and to, to look carefully. And, and what I want to ask is around the, the looking carefully at the, the at the pandemic as it's emerging. Are you seeing things? Are you seeing things that you feel other people are not seeing? Um, are there red alerts coming in the future that you would like to point us to? Well, first of all, I, I should not uh, forget to mention that uh, the reason I was in Edinburgh last time was largely at the invitation and mediation of uh, my friend and uh, colleague here at Stanford, uh, Andrew Elder, who is now the president of the Royal College and still has an affiliation with us. Uh, the anecdote that you were describing is from Conan Doyle. Uh, he was describing his teacher, uh, Joseph Bell, in an article in The Lancet. And I think that, you know, that level of observation right now is hard to come, come by because we're also shielded from our patients. But it's interesting to watch the new clinical observations that are coming out, observations on a frostbite-like syndrome that is being seen in COVID patients, observations on a, a disjunction between their respiratory distress and the level of hypoxia, observations about bizarre neurological findings that are emerging. So clearly there are clinicians out there who are still doing that old-fashioned thing of really paying careful attention. I find a lot of us are actually doing something similar, which is we're spending all, far too much time on Zoom looking at politicians or on TV rather, and uh, we're making our own diagnosis about their mental states and their, and their, and their health, you know, and uh, the media is full of interpretations of people's expressions when so-and-so speaks and when so-and-so doesn't speak, you know, and it's, it's amusing to watch um, because I suspect we have so little else to look at while we're, while we're in these quarantine modes. Yeah. And tell me, speaking of having, I'm sure you don't have so much time, but are you writing uh, any new book? What, what, have, what are you writing at the minute? Yeah, I'm actually finishing up a book that will come out next year. It's a novel that's taken me a very long time to follow up on Cutting for Stone. This one is called The Covenant of Water, and it's very much a medical story set in uh, the 1900s. It begins in the 1900s, mostly in Kerala in the south of India, but it has a significant uh, connection to Glasgow, of all places. So I'm hoping it will interest the uh, readers in, in Scotland. Um, and Andy Elder was kind enough to take me to Glasgow to visit some of the areas that I had uh, visualized in my mind around the old Singer factory and so on. So that'll be coming out sometime next year. And I'm very busy putting the finishing touches of that as it goes to print. Um, I'm also working on odd pieces. I, I wrote something about the nursing home situation here and I 
I see nursing homes as being our cruise ships. You know, they're exactly the same situation with uh, uh, an imprisoned population who are catered to by a small crew and cannot go anywhere and share dining facilities and recreation facilities. And my very first job in America before I finished medicine, uh, when my medical schooling was interrupted, was as a nursing home aide in New Jersey. And so watching these explosions of infection in nursing homes in uh, New Jersey has been absolutely heartbreaking. And I realized the irony that um, the nursing home structure looks very much like a hospital, but unlike our hospitals, which have changed so much in the last few decades, the nursing home remains exactly as it is, you know, with the pseudo medical appearance to it. And I think, you know, the measure of a society is truly how we care for the elderly. And another side effect of COVID, I suspect, will be that we'll have to have a harder look on how we pay for and reimburse geriatric care. Uh, you know, we, we don't make it an attractive enough specialty in this country the way it is in England and, and in Scotland and in the UK in general. And I think... Um, as a result, uh, we really do a very poor job with these, with these folks when at the end of their lives, they really deserve the very best from us, not what, the, not what they get right now. That's very powerful and so important. And uh, I think it's so important, as you, you mentioned, um, the college president, um, Professor Andy Elder, and being a geriatrician and his, his commitment to ensure that the specialty um, is, is, is supported. And, and within that also his commitment to primary care and the intersection between primary care and hospital care, because in that intersection, I think COVID is just showing us the huge struggles and gaps. Can I ask you just to reflect on primary care and how, how we need to strengthen primary care, particularly in the light of caring for those who are older, I think uh, primary care, at least here in this country, has received so much lip service and we act like we value it. And yes, I think our medical students are not naive and they look around and they see that the average primary care physician has to see a ridiculous number of patients just to meet the overhead. Whereas if they enter a specialty like dermatology or something, they don't need to do as much to earn the same amount. And these are students who are carrying huge loads, uh, in term, huge loans from, from the banks and from the government to enter medical school. Uh, and so I think, at least in America, we've done a very poor job of reimbursing primary care and making it attractive. Uh, you are paid in America typically for doing things to people and not doing things for people. So if you have a procedure or something you can stick in some body part, typically that will pay you a lot of money. On the other hand, if you are you know, servicing the great need of our country, which is a burgeoning elderly population, there's very little money in that. So at America, at least, it's driven largely by reimbursement. And you know, our students look around and they see these fancy cancer hospitals with a, you know, concierge uh, uh, in the lobby and the valet parking, and they see short-stay surgery centers, and they see freestanding birthing centers. 
but they never see a freestanding geriatric center with a concierge and valet parking. You know, I think it's very clear where we as a nation are putting our, our money. And um, until that changes, I think primary care is not going to be very attractive and is actually suffering tremendous attrition. Uh, that has to change. Hopefully, uh, this epidemic, the, the many things it will do to American healthcare, is hopefully reform that as well. Okay, and that's a, a, a hope and a thought going forward. Uh, as we close, can I bring you back to Camus' work? And just to ask as well, um, if you were leaving us with some inspiration, with some messages about how we, how we move forward out of this pandemic, thinking of the literature of the past, thinking of your own works, what would you say? I think uh, I'm struck increasingly by the fact that, you know, as scientists, uh, science is, you know, is, is, is accurate. It's uh, quantitative for the most part. Um, it's easier to get your head around. But I think we have to be willing as scientists to turn our attention to the humanities and to ensure that we bring that same attention to governance, to an understanding of history, to an understanding of the social sciences, all of which are rising to the fore in this epidemic as being remarkably deficient. I mean, Santayana said many years ago that those who don't understand history uh, or the mistakes of history are destined to repeat them. And we are certainly doing that in spades. So my own takeaway from all this is that we can't afford the luxury in medicine of saying, well, we're the scientists, we do medicine. Uh, we have to hold the people who control the purse strings. We have to hold you know, our, our politicians to the same standards in their particular sphere, which is governance, which is social sciences, which is history, which is, you know, you could even argue the literature of the classics matter, as I argued earlier, that they should all read Camus, The Plague, and they should all read, uh, you know, Plato's dialogues, and they should understand Socratic ethics as a prerequisite to putting your name on the ballot. So that might be my far-fetched thinking, but that's my hope for the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's an inspiring hope. And I think together, working certainly from the Royal College of Physicians here in Edinburgh and working with, with Stanford and with, with Edinburgh University, let's hope, let's try and make that um, a reality. Um, I really appreciate the time that we've spent together. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And from the Royal College Outpost here in Stanford, I wish all your listeners the very best and to stay safe. Thank you.